This is a disclaimer. Before you enjoy this episode of Film Graves, please keep in mind that we recorded it before the second lockdown and the forced closure of our beloved View Cinemas. And forgive our implorations for you to get lost in great stories, as John Boyega said, at the cinema. Despite the focus on the programming of one corporate chain of cinemas over the others, this is not an advertisement or a piece of SponCon. We wish. Filmgraves at gmail.com Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. Yep, I guess a very specific chain of cinema this week. This episode goes out to Timothy Richards. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, we're going to be talking about programming at View Cinemas over the last few months. Well, they've really been knocking it out of the park, actually, with um, some great rep screening absolutely it's the dream come true i've been waiting for this my whole life you know going to see classic movies at a reasonable rate (laughs) at my chain of choice (laughs) for sure we're ticking all the boxes for the modern cinema goer (laughs) just don't put your head under the mechanical seat and you'll be all right (laughs) yeah view cinemas they took over those warner villages in 2003 and you know they are classic multiplex you know yeah i mean um if we were to go to the cinema in uh shepherd's bush mm. which is you know something we've done many times over the years the west 12 not the westfield one obviously well yeah exactly we, we keep it real on film grays <laughs> <laughs> yeah the point is that there are two in very close proximity but yeah the the west 12 one is obviously you know where we got patted down when we went to see blue story for example where we went to a huge squad viewing of the Hateful Eight when it came out, which is quite memorable. But yeah, we've seen some actual classics in cinema over the last few weeks. We've been spoiled for choice. Yeah. You could go see a classic every day if you wanted to, for a pretty reasonable rate, you know. Since View slashed their prices, I mean, I've been going to this View and Finchley Road since I was a fucking kid or whatever. Up the escalator. Real dream palace shit yeah. in the in the shopping centre, you know. Yeah, the Harrow one is my equivalent of that for sure. I feel like Philip French. But no, like, always been going there. I guess my attendance, like, shot right up when I went to see Cats there at the end of last year. And I realised that all the tickets were super cheap. This is real, like, does sound like an advert at this stage. But I think the slashing of the prices is quite a big deal. As I said, historically, Harrow and then Uxbridge would be, like, my local ones. Um, and then they open one in South Ryset, which is very much so my local one now. Mm-hmm. The ticket prices there are like 15 quid or something. And, you know, it's under half price. Like. Wild. In other cities in the UK as well, like the views are even cheaper. The Harrow one, I guess, is at £7 as well for everything. Yeah. With the free VIP included. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shan had got a taste card at the beginning of the year and then was really fucked off that she wouldn't be able to use it because everything closed because there was a global pandemic. But um, with the discount of that, it's actually like dirt cheap. And yeah, we've been rinsing it. Um, I think they are more expensive in Central and then I guess it like gets cheaper the further away from the cultural centre of our great nation that it gets. And then once you get up, up north, you're paying like a happening or something it's a fiver yeah it's like cheaper than you know the deals that i used to like yeah. it's about the same as Pet like complex the, or something like that but the bfi repertory dream 
lives on pretty much yeah after the after the age of 26 it's just such a strange place to uh find these sorts of rep screenings we're talking cult films anniversary stuff and i guess i had noticed this a bit before but it feels like there's been a real increase in the amount of rep screenings they've been doing like on a daily basis you can't have screenings of tenet every 15 minutes for weeks on end yeah for sure because now you know cineworld and picture house have closed Mm. You know, I guess because they ran out of like opera streams to like sell to people. But View opened, reopened a lot later than Odeon and Cineworld when like they were allowed to open cinemas, which I guess is like a price point thing or whatever because they'd like slashed their prices so much at the start of the year. Mm. Maybe it was like harder to justify, but now they're, you know, reigning supreme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, economically, I'm not sure how much they're killing it because. I guess we'll get into how thinly populated some of these screenings were, but... There's always room in the VIP. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to sell out, like, free screenings of Rocky a day in, like, Harrowview or something. Maybe they thought they'd struck gold. Maybe they were like, oh, this is it. But this is it. Well, yeah, it fully is. Should we get into it? Yeah. <laughs> classics this week that we saw in view cinemas i think we'll go reverse chronological nice uh not of date of release but of when we saw them and we saw psycho very recently 60th anniversary reissue you said it was a new restoration i believe so i mean it looked fucking peng yeah i mean yeah not only is it the 60th anniversary but i mean everyone's down to talk about psycho in the new questionably edited issues of sight and sound the horror issue they've got this like archive essay on psycho from uh linda williams from 1994 so still like a long long time after mm, they were still mm. like publishing like six page articles yeah, in sight yeah. and sound legacy scholarship sort of stuff that was a really good write-up i think it was mostly again talking about the way she understood the phenomenology of like the pr of psycho and like audiences reactions to be a real return to like the cinema of attractions uh, Tom Gunning foundational shit but just about like you know the early early days of cinema what like people went to the cinema for which mm. is not to be scared of a train or whatever but more to you know be thrilled or whatever yeah, and th- to have like a consumer experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly we actually missed the very beginning because they appeared not to play any ads in this screening Usually um, going to view, you can count on 25 minutes even before John Boyega and Ridley Scott turn up or whatever. Yeah, um, but this was, we got in like 10 minutes after the advertised time and it was like, we'd missed like a scene. Yeah. And the opening credits and, you know. Hitchcock would be spinning in his grave, you know. Oh, well, absolutely. The big deal, Psycho like really changed how cinemas worked in a way because of this ban that they introduced as one of these like publicity stunts mm. where you weren't allowed to go see the film if you don't get there before the start. And cinemas would like run films like throughout the day, just like constantly. So like, well, I guess this is like almost an urban myth at this point, but often people just turn up halfway through and then watch the beginning after the end or whatever. Great. I feel like we could have done with that yesterday. Uh, Just on the publicity, um, you told me something quite jokes earlier about how he'd like sent out a team um psycho's adapted from a novel that came out in 1959 i think robert block robert block yeah and hitchcock sent out a sort of squadron to try and like buy up all the 
copies so uh he could so if you can find out the twist yeah <laughs> which is i don't know again it sounds like apocryphal but uh i guess it's a nice idea and goes to show like how the surprises of the film are like so important which i guess is ironic because we went with a few people that hadn't seen it before and everyone goes into psycho knowing one thing of about the shower scene. Like, At least, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Famous. Yeah, it's like full, like, popular imagination stuff, you know. Like, it's an image that is in, like, everyone's mind through parody. I don't think anyone listening to this needs the, the you know, the shower scene described to them or whatever. Well, Even though sure. every time you watch it, it's a bit different or whatever. Yeah, I mean, technically, it's stunning. The whole film technically is stunning. Um, so much inventive camera work and use of editing. And, you know, we were looking at the um, Truffaut Hitchcock book. Mm. They're talking a lot about uh, the use of montage and um, how, like, you know, they achieve these, like, stunning um, experiential effects. A lot of long takes in the film besides this thing. But it's interesting to think about how Hitchcock was... <laughs> so much foregrounding to do in that you know that's like 71 cuts in 45 seconds yeah it's some mad ridiculous yeah. like um, darren aronofsky vibes or whatever which <laughs> it's was such a well shot sequence yeah so. he talks about it as a challenge you know i guess it's like one of the times he's like first was able to like speak openly about his art or whatever mm. it's an amazing book guys you should yeah and we saw out. the documentary. Yeah, the Ken, Jones's, yeah. Ken Jones's film, fine film, mm. central to the Oto theory. I guess <laughs> this this was after the interviews or whatever. There's so much about Psycho, even these urban myths we were talking about, where it's like the PR, much like almost everything nowadays, the, the artistry of the PR is like seen as like essential to like the artistry, like the, yeah. the content and of like the work the, of art, you know? Yeah, for sure. And like the involvement of Saul Bass and... Um, He's the Herman... What's the Bernard called? Herman. Bernard Herman. Um, I mean, yeah, there's honestly so much to celebrate about this film on, like, literally every level. Um, Didn't disappoint seeing it in the cinema as well. No. You'd, yeah, seen, you'd seen it before in the cinema, hadn't you? I saw it with my mum when I was a lot younger in the cinema. And, you know, seen it bare times. I guess it's a film that discloses new um, qualities every time you see it. There was a, some installation by Douglas Gordon, the guy who made the Zidane. Oh, film. oh, the Mogwai one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine film. Um, where he screened Psycho like over 24 hours, just like really slowed down, like frame mm. by frame or whatever. Oh. And it's, you know, culturally iconic. But with regards to the PR, it felt like such a deliberate move to like scale down the production. Like he made this with like the crew that he made his TV show, like straight after making North by Northwest, which I guess was like probably his most epic, like grandest film in terms of like production mounted and he really scaled it down and people talk about it as like a inverted commas experimental film certainly has a b-movie quality yeah uh, the plot and i guess something we were thinking about earlier is like how so much of the reception of it was governed by uh i guess a sort of horror mm-hmm. um and even the robin wood stuff that um is very interesting i guess sort of psychoanalytical approach to it we've just become inured to these sorts of presentations of violence nihilism meaninglessness <laughs> and like you know characters who are like non-characters establishing main characters who will die like at a surprising point in the film but yeah at the point it was just obviously groundbreaking shocking and truly horrific like yeah sure i mean people were truly repulsed by it yeah. as a bit of like pulp i guess but 
it's just hard not to experience it as like high art and like the epitome of like <laughs> film art. Yeah. Uh, just the composition is crazy throughout. The music brings so much. Keep your ears pricked for a weird interpretation of it at some point. You need to learn the but... chords. <laughs> Apparently, like Hitchcock hated the film before he received the score for it by Herman. And he said many times that like Herman is responsible for 33% of the, Great. the success of the film. It contributes so much. Of course. But yeah, astonishing performances. I guess... Tony Anthony, Perkins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, a really staggering, very naturalistic performance. Um, surprisingly so, I guess. And it's a real... Really good. Yeah, it's a real force of performance, especially considering like the styles of performance that were around at that specific time or whatever. If you compare it to like a Nicholas Ray film, I mean, like all the performances, like all the actors are just like, you know, the dialogue they're reciting is so much less important than like what Hitchcock is like making them do with all their like body language and like where they're standing the whole time. Apparently, I haven't read the novel Psycho. Because I guess Hitchcock bought all the copies or whatever. But <laughs> um, supposedly, like, Norman Bates is uh, a bit more of, like, a repulsive character. Like, way older. Like, less, like, enchanting or, like, mm. normal. Like, he knew what he was doing with, like, the point of identification. Whereas, like, he has glasses and shit in the novel. But I guess it was such an influential performance from Perkins as well. You know. I was saying it reminded me so much of, like everything Jim Carrey has ever done or ever mm. after watching it. There's definitely a sort of folksiness to it, which is like uh, disarming, which makes the uh, trajectory of the story so effective as well. But so much of that Hitchcock is responsible for as well. It's just so masterfully done. We were all howling, you know, yeah. by the end. Yeah. It was a uh... round of applause from the <laughs> five people. Yeah. <laughs> no, was, was I guess the trouble with watching something so like iconic is it's impossible to experience the film as like audiences would have experienced it in the 60s where I was so aware of the twist and like nothing was surprising. And I do find it almost hard to read like criticism of it or like accept the the gambit of the film where like you're supposed to be shocked that Norman is the killer like dressing up and as, as a spoiler alert but i mean every everyone fucking knows it everyone like yeah there's a whole netflix show predicated on the fact that like norman bates is like a scary serial killer or whatever but when you're watching the film you're not supposed to think that yeah I, i'd say that some of our party did have that sort of virginal approach to it and were surprised by it they never heard Shimmy Shimmy Yard by Old Dirty Bastard. <laughs> no, but it is obviously so deeply permeated into our like consciousness. Like I knew it years <laughs> before I saw the film. Or yeah, like, of course. I probably only saw the film when I was like a teenager or whatever, but I was so aware of like the foundational tropes of like horror and storytelling that were laid down by this film. I think it still has the capacity to shock though in its uh, like modes of disclosure. Like there are still you know, even just how it's edited, like, if you know what, even if you know the story, even if you've seen it before, like, there are moments, like, still when uh, the PI gets knived, like, I was like, whoa! Because, yeah. obviously, oh, like, it's well. a, just an astonishingly shot seg bit of film, mm. you know? And there's always a good technical story going along with it, or whatever, if you want to read about how Hitchcock, like, did these technical feats, you know? And he is, one of the things he's most famous for is inventing shit like the dolly zoom or like mm. the shot in Psycho where the 
camera circles around like a 2p in mcdonald's or whatever i don't like i don't know how he did that but you can find out it's uh and it's a cool story you know or like him falling down the stairs and that i don't know that's a green screen yeah i feel like powerful is a term for films that's reserved for like films like um the post or something like that <laughs> but in the vip seat I was overpowered, <laughs> powered by these sequences in Psycho. Just because they yeah. are like, I don't know, this is bait or whatever, but they are like enjoyable mm. on like a film level as well as being absolutely horrific, which is what like all horror cinema post Psycho is like predicated on having these sequences be like the most famous bits of the film or whatever. And like where you throw your like filmmaking art into. It's like creative ways to portray murder. Yeah, I mean, and you you got to face it, like, this is, like, top tier. Um, the transition from the drain to the eye. So many crazy cam- camera tricks. Um, there's a shot right at the end when it's, like, lingering on um, Norman's face. And then it um, just flashes, like, for a moment, the superimposition of his mother's face or the skeleton, which is just, like... Yeah. <laughs> and when that's <laughs> like, 60 feet so... tall, right at the end of... I didn't realise this show was two hours long when you just said... It felt like it was about 45 minutes to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really zips by. But I guess that's just the time waiting between, like, the famous bits or whatever. Yeah. But it's just structured in such an interesting way as well. Mm. Where, like, you know, the shower scene comes way earlier in the film than maybe you'd expect if you didn't. Because it's like... uh I guess that's the point of, like, Janet Lee being, like, the lead or whatever and then dying. Like, it's a risky or unusual move to, like, kill off your protagonist, like, at that point. But the structure of the film after that is just so well-paced. So well-paced. I guess this is one of these radical things he was trying to do with, like, everything, like, about the film, including, like, the release and, like, the production straight after an insanely creative period. I mean, too much to say. We talked about Notorious before. Yeah, that's right. The Wrong Man, my fave, for sure. But, like, insanely productive 50s, like, one of the best runs ever. And Psycho is such a break. And he didn't really, you know, I guess he was pretty old. He was in his, like, late 60s when he made this film. But he'd seen the whole cinema history, and he knew exactly what would be, like, the most upsetting to audiences. This is the same year as Breathless and Peeping Tom, all of which, like, really upset people's relationship Mm. with film or whatever. Mm. Provocative film on, like, so many levels. Um, I'm not sure whether you might want to drop in some quotes from that Robin Wood, but I feel like we can talk about it. But it's just such a rich film that, you know, it does feel like a disservice to talk about it analytically just within this context because there are so many levels that you can talk about it on. Um, I guess primarily psychological and, like, the different ways of exploring psychology on film. But, you know, we are talking about it in the context of a programme, so we won't go too deep. I think one thing that's worth dwelling on, though, in terms of that sort of psychological aspect is the mental health stuff and, you know the uh, sort of pathologization sequence at the end, which is... Uh, the worst scene in the film. Yeah, or... a big time, yeah. Yeah, of course, everyone um, is yeah. deliberate. <laughs> well, for sure. In Hitchcock Truffaut, they say, you know, it's meant to show that, like, they get it wrong. Yeah, he's going for the haters who are like, why don't they go to the police in your films or whatever? And he's like, well, here's, here's why. <laughs> yeah, because I'm going to bore the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah, and it's obviously just like very historically specific interpretations of like these psychological phenomena that the film deals with. The inherent sexual violence of being a transvestite and stuff like that. The idea is, to me, is that that's as poor an analysis at the time, if you've made it through the whole film, you, that's the explanation or whatever. You're like, 
going to be like, oh, fuck this psychiatrist or whatever. It's a great title, this film, you know. <laughs> In the Robin Wood shit, he's talking about the state of psychosis being like eternal anguish, which I guess is the language of Freud or whatever. If I really wanted to like explore the psychology of Norman Bates, maybe I'd watch Bates Motel. I'm sure they captured every nuance of the delicate psychopathology that like has been written into this character. But like all the like great Hitchcock films, it's adapted from some pulpy ass bullshit novel that like, you know, just got optioned to him. Turned it into an insanely rich work through technique. Yeah. And PR. <laughs> I loved seeing it in the cinema. It looked so crisp. It was unbelievable, yeah. To be enchanted with the technique of this film or whatever is one thing. Like, you show that to an alien or whatever. <laughs> if you meet them, like, this is what cinema is. So thank you, View, as yeah. I'll say many times in this show, for putting it on. Yeah, I felt very lucky to see it on the big screen because it's just so immersive. Like and so... Hitchcock on the big screen. No, we saw Notorious. I think that's the only other one, though. This was more wavy <laughs> although notorious is a really interesting film as well. they're all really <laughs> interesting. i watched jamaica in on sunday night that was less interesting but that is in the medved brothers 50 worst films of all time <laughs> alongside with such favorites as last year at marianne bad and ivan the terrible yesterday after um the film shan was trying to think of some old film that she was like oh, i saw it like three times like on tv when i was younger and it was something to do with like some like trauma and like skiing or some something yeah and then yeah. and then i was like i bet it's hitchcock yeah. <laughs> it was a uh, spellbound spellbound yeah yeah God. i don't know if it's any good but. there's this one like impaling sequence in Spell, spellbound where they again it's very similar to the the bit in falling down the stairs yeah i don't know how they shot that shit Classic. yeah i think we're gonna check they're all they're all classics. We'll keep on coming back to Hitchcock on this. Yeah, definitely. We'll probably yeah. never do a Hitchcock episode. Although we are Hitchcock-o-Hawksians, I guess. <laughs> Damn, I really wanted to get in a joke about saying we were Robin Wood's merry men. But <laughs> <laughs> didn't manage it. Norman Bates. Psycho, and we're now going to move on to another real classic, the only best picture winner of the three uh, <laughs> totally iconic films, legendary oh, films right. that you were programming, and another great, psychologically rich, radical B movie style with huge contemporary appeal and like legendary status. Low budget, yeah. Low budget, absolutely. But the film that the person needed to make. I don't know that much about John D. Avildsen <laughs> compared to Hitchcock. He's, you know, in the auteurist <laughs> canon. He's not not quite up there. Slightly lesser figure, yeah. But the other great one-word title, maybe up there with Psycho and... Satan Tango. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Keanu. <laughs> the one-word titles. We are, of course, talking about Rocky mm. from 1976, which disclaimer was my favorite film when i was nine years old <laughs> so returning to the cinema to see this after a long long gap of not really revisiting with my best friends was an awesome brilliant experience i'd just like to thank everyone at view 
for <laughs> giving me that time. Sam, you've never seen Rocky before. No, no. As my dad said when I got home, it's a proper film. It sure uh, is. It's, yeah, exactly. I feel like this is a film that I had lots of preconceptions about. I suppose, like, if I hadn't seen Psycho when we saw it, mm. where there are sort of moments from it which are so iconic and, like, parodied that, you know, it really um, sort of shaped my preconceptions of it. Um, but I was really caught off guard by it. It's an astonishing film, actually, and so little of it is to do with boxing. For sure. Uh, which is one of the most surprising aspects of it. But yeah, just like a sort of tender love story, a commentary on sort of alienation in 70s America, I guess living in a, a town with like fucked up opportunities. Um, my only real relationship with Philadelphia on screen is it's always sunny in Philadelphia, which I think most of it's actually filmed in LA. And like back, back <laughs> really? It's like, yeah. And it's literally but it captures just like, the spirit. You yeah, know? for sure. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that? Like downtrodden. <laughs> you see that video that was going around where like the guy quit his job and he's like, you know where I'm going to go? Where I go every Friday night to see your daughter give me a fucking lap dance or whatever. It's like oh my God, man. the Philly vibe or whatever. You missed Mikey and Nikki for Film Club. Oh, yeah, I was very sad to miss it. It looked great. But I guess a sort of troubled portrait of a city. Lots of shots of Stallone, like, sort of just walking around. Bumps into Frank Stallone. Take it back. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Launching yeah. his brother's arguably more successful music career. <laughs> Legendary. I love the fact that Stallone, like, crafted this project and made it you know as you said made it happen basically willed it into existence i think he had powers of intimidation against my <laughs> producers right? sylvester Stallone walks into your office like listen you gotta make this movie like I swear to god whoever made it i don't even know i don't really uh john d avildsen man no i mean like the producers oh like, mgm yeah fair. on the last great studio pictures <laughs> it's such such like a street movie though, like the grain. Yeah. Um, and as I said, so much film just like pottering around outside, kicking cans around. Yeah, just um, you know. You know the feeling though. He doesn't have an well, iPod, you know. Like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's, a big, big disjuncture. Like usually, like oh, what if they had a phone? But like this one's like oh, if he had tunes, it would be, you know. <laughs> but there is so much walking in this film. Like up there with Satan Tango. I mean, obviously, yeah. proportion of the pie chart or whatever. So much of the film is him walking in and out of the scene mm. and just like shooting the the street yeah the desolation i said already Radical. said alienation but like it really interrogates like you know a, i guess a substantial part of the film concerns his burgeoning relationship with his like friend's sister who works in the pet shop and you know it's pretty cute, you know, he's like Adrian. there like yeah Adrian. uh going there like looking at you know, little fish or whatever. It's not Talking like, I was so dog. like surprised by these aspects of the film. Um, and it was like a very profound commentary on the period, you know, and yeah. in a sort of timeless way as well, because like these are, you know, urban alienation is like obviously such a pertinent question still. Um, and it just like depicts it so well. The religion. We're not the re talking about it on the episode, but I also saw Paul Trader's first film, Blue Collar, in the cinema at the BFI which programmed by Laj Lai. 
Cool. Yeah. It's part of the like Les Miserables, like influence season or whatever. Um, Instantly. Fantastic film. Yeah, well. yeah. I really rated it. Yeah. Yeah. And Blue Collar was also really like pff, amazing. I can't believe I hadn't seen it before. Mm. Yeah, um, it sounded really cool the way you were describing it to me. But I guess the aesthetic and that like sort of socioeconomic sort of discourse is probably quite similar. So many people in the 70s were trying to make this film. <laughs> like, you know, it's like... Mm. It's a total lie to say, like, class consciousness, like, entered, like, American cinema. But this is, like, all Hollywood cinema, like, you know, mm. with big production companies and stuff like that, you know. Although, I would say, Nicholas Ray, always Sam Fuller, you know, Phil Carlson, these legends in the 50s and 60s did set a precedent. But it's not all uh, The Godfather and... Uh, films about a shark attacking people in the Hamptons. Or... It's also, yeah, I mean, it's about entrepreneurialism and it's no coincidence that Michel Foucault delivered his lectures at the Collège de France at this period entitled uh, The Birth of Biopolitics, like right. one of the first expositions of neoliberalism. Right. Um, right. <laughs> which is, you know... But there's so much more than that going on and those sorts of economic anxieties and, like, political reconfigurations... Um, the sort of looming religious imagery I oh, thought was very striking. It starts with like an amazing Jesus, like one of the best Jesuses I've ever seen in this like and then orthodox church out. that's also a boxing yeah. ring. And it yeah. starts with Jesus' eyes and yeah, pans out. To them. <sighs> what a first shot. Yeah, Way better than the one in Cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's Andre Rublev shit, you know. It's the sequel the... to Andre Rublev. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right. It's, it picks it up where Tarkovsky left it off there. Um <sighs> <laughs> Everything you said on this segment has been music to my ears, Sam. Let's talk about music because there are so many iconic music cues in this film. <laughs> yeah, but Wait, I was going to say non-digest. I mean, that is a you know a nice example of sort of the sound of the streets, diegetic music. Hell but I mean, yeah. there's some great soundtracking, and you're talking about how you know he didn't have headphones, he didn't have the tunes, but. He's running and we can hear the tunes and, you know. That whole, I can't believe, that montage is like as sick as the shower sequence in Psycho. It's got, it's got punching the meat, drinking the eggs, chasing the chicken. These are all, I don't know, I don't think about Rocky that much, but like, you know, talking about Freudian psychology or whatever. This definitely like shapes a bit of my imagination when I was watching this shit and I was so enchanted with it. As a, as a kid, I thought the whole Rocky saga was fire. I hadn't seen, you know, and this was long before Rocky Balboa, sick film, came out. But that, the first five, like, which tells an interesting story. We're not here to talk about all the Rocky films or whatever. But with regards to what you're saying about sort of social realism, Rocky, like, as a saga is so, like, Rocky's so co-optable, you know, because mm. he's doing, even by the second film, he's doing everything, like, to tell some sort of grand narrative about America. A lot of these films have been critiqued for their sort of, like... Imperialism. Yeah. Which reaches its apex at, well, I guess, no, it's the whole, maybe in number three or whatever, the Mr. T one. I haven't seen Fine the ones film. with um, Michael B. Jordan, like, um, Those films which again, like, these are sort of reflexive works of art, I guess. Well, I guess I can say that without having seen them. Yeah. I would say that the first one is definitely more Camus than Freud, because, uh, mm. you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> I guess it's about like the sort of not futility, but there is like a sort of Sisyphean quality to his. Well, he has no chance in, he's, in this film. You know, he's such an underdog. He's got no chance of uh, making it. You know, like the whole reason Apollo Creed 
played beautifully by Carl Weathers from Arrested Development. Okay. Fights Rocky is because he's like a loser and like he's got to like prove a point. Like I mean, he's like, giving like a local guy a chance. Not like that's the PR packaging, but, the PR but he so just wants someone to like to be. You know. Yeah, but the PR is so interesting because it's like he's gonna have his fight in Philadelphia on the bicentennial of the United States of America. Yeah, it's like Nashville or something. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very like Nashville. <laughs> for sure. And this, like, the role that, like, a representative of the United States of America plays, it gets bigger and bigger as the Rocky films go on. Probably including the Creed films as well. Whereas in Rocky Four, he's, like, running up mountains, training to beat this, like, roided up... Um, you know, in like the height of the Reagan era and much like Rambo, like, well, that's the film that I, the Tiger's in. So can't write it off entirely. But that film is like the definition of like Reagan cinema. Hoberman talks about this shit really well in his sort of like decade surveys. Great writer, part yeah. Of like, yeah, of course. It's a big part of like understanding the story of American cinema. Mm, or whatever, mm. I think. For sure. For sure. And I, yeah, well, I guess that's sort of the point. Like it was just such a, a way more nuanced portrait than I anticipated of, you know, I guess a specific form of American life. But easily co-optable for that reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a, I mean, it is like quintessential franchise fodder as demonstrated by its, what, like eight sequels or whatever. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know. You should watch the Creed movie, Sam. I think they're so good. The to be new honest. one, the, the two, the, the two Creed ones. and Creed yeah, yeah. two, like yeah, fair enough. For which Stallone almost won his uh, Oscar. This film won loads of Oscars. Include this is the only Best Picture winner of the three. I mean that is mad, but obviously resonated, and it was still very resonant. There was one other person in the cinema besides our small party, um, and afterwards, you guys had a very nice chat a nice socially distanced <laughs> um, but you know obviously the film was very meaningful to that guy and to you as well you know it's a proper nostalgia trip that guy was really cool man he was like I am Rocky you know? and I was like of course you are yeah this guy you know but we did go at 3pm on a Thursday or whatever yeah. it's not exactly prime time cinema going hours they screened they the, whole, the, the whole saga including Rocky Balboa didn't show the Creed films though. Mm. You think Creed would be part of that? I don't know. I guess they just uh, aren't as cheap, correct? I like the films of the Miramax <laughs> back catalogue. Final film we're going to be discussing that we saw in few cinemas in recent times is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. This was definitely the most densely populated screening we went to. I think it was actually sold out. Yeah, it was like a VIP screen, so it was like extra spaced out. Yeah, I keep saying listeners. to you, I keep saying to you that I don't want to go to the BFI because even though they're obviously doing. Because the films are too sick. Theoretically doing social distancing. It's like the seats are like too, too near to each other, you know. Yeah. Anyway, is a packed house. All these films have been like mad empty. Even like St. Maud, mm. Bill and Ted. Like mm. it's been like no one there. But Pulp Fiction was like disarmingly full. It was a Saturday. 
Yeah, no one got under the uh, the seats. Everyone was loving it. Yeah, I sure shit was loving it. <laughs> oh, I so had I like a frisson when the credits dropped at the beginning. Mm. It's iconic. Like probably one of my most watched films historically. It's like, like I how I felt up. when the overture and Tommy came on. Yeah, but presumably, dear listener, you've watched Pulp Fiction. Maybe you've seen all the films we spoke about today. Hopefully, but. Uh, it really is a film, narratively, that I feel very familiar with. I remember when I was a kid, I found the, uh, like, Faber screenplay yeah. on the street. Yeah, they loved, and they loved that shit in the 90s, yeah, just printing yeah. the screenplay. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a really fun screening experience. I'd go so far as to say that I think Pulp Fiction is underrated, Having enjoyed this screening so much, I know that's probably a ridiculous I thing think to say. I think that's insane, personally. I think that's Norman Bates level. <laughs> but I also fucking loved it, you know. I had such a good time, even though, like, nothing came as a surprise. I was just watching, pe- like, if you'd gone to see, like, a play that you love or whatever. Yeah. You're just watching people recite nice dialogue. But, again, still found new shit in it, as with any good film. You can watch mm. it time and time again. Probably hasn't seen it in like 10 years. Yeah, it's been a long while for me also. It used to be one of these ones in the pre-iPlayer era. It would always be on... Film 4 or something. Like, yeah, or like BBC 2 or something like that. And I'd always just like, even though I used to... I probably didn't even watch it that many times when I was a kid or like a teenager, but like I rated it when I saw mm. it. Or and it was already like being burned into my brain because the whole shit is so memorable and like draws attention to how like iconic it is supposedly it was like a sleeper hit at the time which i can't believe or whatever mm. i can't believe it but i did win the palm door i guess thanks to clint eastwood who was the the jury president no that, way that year yeah or whatever. i guess that's one of the yeah square quote problematic aspects to it oh. i feel like when i was writing shitty screenplays when i was like 14 enjoying pulp fiction probably had quite an adverse effect on the sort of material i was writing i'm sure you didn't Uh, write a sequence into it where you appear and just like say a bunch of racist shit (laughs) 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 but sick it goes without saying yeah I i don't know there are so many interesting things about it obviously one of the most a real like stylization turn in american cinema in that period of like i guess Again, square. Um, did I say square quotes before? Scare, qu- <laughs> scare quotes, or don't be a square quotes. That's my favorite part of the whole film, man. <laughs> yeah, but it's meant to be like cool. Sorry, is the point. Um, yeah. And it, it is cool. Sort of is. Like, <laughs> yeah, I sort of hate to say it because uh, dance bit is cool. Not, but the bit where is. he chooses his weapon is cool. Like they're fun, yeah. enjoyable sequences, whatever. The soundtracks, like, I feel like Reservoir Dogs and this, I guess, introduced me to a lot of, like, jokes music when I was, like, mm. a kid. I remember learning that tune because we played it in one of our things. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I mean, that, like, taught me a shape on the fretboard, nice. you know. I love counting flowers on the wall, <laughs> smoking um, cigarettes. I guess it's bait, but... Captain. You know, the casting is obviously legendary. Oh, yeah. Um, Now we just think of it as part of a sort of 
continue my guess what are the adverts that harvey keitel turns up as as the is it talk talk it's like an insurance thing yeah yeah as a you know mr wolf or whatever the fuck it is yeah so many amazing performances the guy who plays the buddy holly waiter is fire and it's a real showcase you know again like stunt casting like psycho or whatever yeah but bruce willis i guess was probably my main like from watching it this time around, like that was the performance I enjoyed the most. And I love the style of that segment as well, which is just has so many distinct aspects to it. Mm. Um, the back projection and like real like noir quality to the cab scene and that really like weird cab driver that he interacts with. I think that's I fantastic. But then when we were watching it, that's um, you lent, lent to me and were like, oh, this is like GTA or something on a perspective mm. level. Um, There's that it's one like shot. where you shuffle through the perspectives of like a character. And then it was just like a slightly like, a, I guess like sort of privileged view, like where when he's just walking into the back of a building, Bruce Willis's character. Yeah. This is the, the coolest shit. Like, cause that is more influential than any other shot or whatever in cinema. They like perfected, <laughs> perfected the like third, third person, like, angle and you mm. see that in any fucking video game super mario or whatever you know it's the same fucking framing or yeah whatever. it's really well done but um the cinematography is like not limited to that sort of like dynamic work mm. um you know it has i guess tarantino wrote two famous monologues for christopher walken in his true romance monologue about sicilians and the the watch um scene in, in this which this is, scene is fire you know, it's this scene I, I loved i love the cartoon he's watching at the start i don't know was it a speed racer or something like that but that's burned into my brain as well a great sequence yeah um, but just the camera does so much and yeah, just the pacing of the film is quite a long film. So much happens. I guess these sort of stories that are structured this way with like you're jumping around can be sort of tedious and convoluted. But here, I don't know, maybe it's the nostalgia factoring in and it's such a powerful force. And well, I enjoyed Rocky as like someone had not seen it before, but I imagine that contributed a lot to your experience of watching it on the big screen and here sure. i don't know like i guess i was just in a sort of reverie and a sort of critical suspension yeah and i just really enjoyed it you got a proustian rush off your tango ice plus <laughs> flavor, flavor mix off my diane abbott mns cocktail tin special very good shouts there a double measure they removed the like you can't bring in food or drink clause into the website a factoid of intelligence from an anonymous member of the film Grey's listening community. <laughs> but yeah, apparently it's not in the rules anymore. So it's a free Fair. for all. I'm going to be going in with a see-through bag full of uh, Evanesque cocktail tins. I'm mostly just going for the uh, Tango Ice Blast. <laughs> Pop Fiction was fire, man. I'd... <laughs> yeah, it was just such a pleasure to watch. Every second I think about this guy or this film, I'm like, hate this shit you know yeah. like, i'm sure people feel this way about like very similarly in terms of uh, director persona about my man jean-luc goddard mm. i don't want to compare tarantino to goddard because it's way less rigorous and he's not even like radical he just makes like cool films or whatever but he takes so much out of his the technique out of the films from that the he new made. wave just from goddard i feel and well and also from melville i guess like 
those Bruce Willis sequences are... Red Circle? Yeah. Presumably that has some sort of influence on Reservoir Dogs. Sure. And definitely the Samurai and, yeah, a lot of these movies, I think. And, you know, and that's like, like that cool sort of nebulous quality that I was trying to describe earlier, which is, I don't know, it's just not a useful descriptor really, but but like it washes over you, you know, it's sort of intoxicating. I can find it grating in French New Wave films though. Mm. And I'd expect to find it more grating in these 90s American films, you know, real like <laughs> washed culture, you know. <laughs> uh, but I don't know, it is the nostalgia. In A Band Apart by Jean-Luc Godard from 1964, which is a cool-ass film, although it's definitely, definitely not his best. Yeah, but that, you know, that's what he named his production company after and also what he inherited, the, like, cool dance sequence, like, as a distraction, just, like, happening, mm. like, spontaneously or whatever. But that's a film that's, like, full of those kinds of sequences where, like, everything is a distraction, like, from the plot or whatever. It's all about these, like leaps and like really mm. fun moments like besides the plot i guess weekend is the exact opposite or whatever but he manages to feel like exactly like you're watching a goddard film a lot of the time or whatever i guess pulp fiction is like obsessed with living in this like world of inheritance of like 50s and 60s culture or whatever not just the diner but like even the plot mechanisms just comparing it to psycho mm. and how it reads as an american film and a cultural artifact from a specific time Thinking about the reception of Psycho, where it's like seen as sordid and monstrous and terrible to represent these things. Mm. I guess Tarantino is like the sort of apotheosis of that sort of representation, or like Eli Roth or something like that, at least in sort of commercial American cinema. Um, sure. you, you know, but it's that like the logical extension of like showing toes or whatever. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's definitely, like, the logic. <laughs> this film has a, profan- a rape yeah, in profan- it. It has, yeah. like, a, a fucking someone, like, snorting heroin mm. and, like, being injected, like, breaking all these taboos. Like, it's got the crazy language, to be honest. Like, yeah. beyond the pale in, like, all ways. But it's not transgressive in any way. <laughs> <laughs> what, because you think it adheres to these, like, Goddard forms? No, I just mean, like, it's... It ends in this like crazy like Brissonian grace moment of like it, it follows like a proper right wing Christian ideology or whatever. As as do like pretty much all his films. It's postmodern, obviously like a lot of people like have problems with like key postmodern texts, but like wouldn't compare this to like Gravity's Rainbow or whatever, you know. But like this is extremely pomo. Um there's a really good Rosenbaum essay. I feel like I've read like about a thousand pages of Jonathan Rosenbaum because I've been picking up like book after book in the same Oxfam shout out I don't know who's given those books there but I also found the Rivet edited thing from the BFI it's cool what a find yeah in Canterbury in... also I bought a copy oh, of Vineland and um, the guy that worked there showed me his like Tristero muted trumpet tattoo oh, do people have that <laughs> which tattoo? was cool I was talking to I was talking to Jamie about this like it's the coolest tattoo ever, but now that I know someone who has it, like I can't <laughs> yeah. fucking get it or whatever. But it is so pomo and it is it does like disorientate the viewer to a state where you're just like able to enjoy all of this shit on a surface level. You don't have any attachment to any of the characters, even this like spiritual lesson at the end, like doesn't mean much. 
Mm, I feel like just one note on that tension between postmodernity as a sort of reading and right-wing elements of it. I would say that it definitely sort of ironises the um, sort of like salvational ideas of Samuel L. Jackson's character. We're not meant to accept that. We're meant to read it as like ironic. One thing I noticed, which I hadn't seen before, is like when they get shot, Mm. And the bullets like don't hit them. Like there are already <laughs> there are already bullet holes on the wall before um, he starts firing his gun. Um, but, wow. Yeah, but it's certainly not an endorsement by representation. I guess there's so much to say about the sort of morality of it or whatever, and like how that's an extension of Tarantino's politics. But it's one of his best films, though. I think mm. for sure. Like any time you come back to it, like. Mm. Super enjoyable. Yeah, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it watching it on on this viewing because I thought I'd find it a lot more facile than I did. I thought it was actually lit. <laughs> I did too, even though every fibre of my being is like, this is bullshit. But that's <laughs> yeah. just, but that's just me like hating on myself as a fourteen year old or whatever. The view programming, I was saying, is like it's like it's programmed by me, yeah. As you know, Empire magazine reading, Jurassic like, teenager, Park. Hot Fuzz, and Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, maybe they've been selling. I don't know. When Harry Met I Sally, mean... nice bit of programming. Now they got like Nightmare on Elm Street, The Exorcist, nice Spider Verse. Like, pff, folks, get yourselves to a view and put your mask on, and you'll have a great time. International listeners, you should be jealous of <laughs> us in the UK having the... Although Brandon from Film Club was saying they're doing similar shit in Australia as well. Mm. This particular kind of classics, you know, it's not BFI big screen classics, you know. It's nostalgia industry for like... Uh, Dude canon, I think. But they're yeah. fun for the whole family, all of these films. Like, you know. I do also resent myself for enjoying Pulp Fiction as much as I did, but... <laughs> It's fine. Rocky is is probably more right-wing or whatever. Psycho is the most Catholic. We're talking about Hitchcock, you know. That's like the most like spiritually dogmatic filmmaking or whatever. Priest film episode coming soon. Ah, we always say it. We didn't even talk about Transference, the the (laughs) Spoon's best album from 2010. Um, Oh, my God. But, I mean, that's that's the key word with Hitchcock or whatever. Shit. There's so much to say because we've had a real feast of repertory programming recently. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we can't really pretend that this was like a coherent um, <laughs> sort of. Uh, we will be back with some more like thematic ones, but I guess the main aim here has been to stress that long live view rep programming, you know, because they really have been smashing it. Even when all the films are coming out again, I hope they still save some time for some classics. You'd like to think so. I feel like they have always done anniversary screenings, but some of these just seem like pretty arbitrary. Like, <laughs> just like, oh, it'd be cool if we made Pulp Fiction. That's, and that's... it was fucking cool to watch it, so I back it. And they reaped the economic rewards. I hate to always, you know, be the person who, like, looks at it from that framework. I, I guess they haven't been making a killing, but they should keep doing it, definitely. Yeah. With regards to the programming, like, View for a couple of years for me was the place where I would go to see the new Clint Eastwood movies because they weren't mm. screening anywhere else. And but they'll they have like a t- like, 2 p.m. Like one random afternoon yeah, yeah, screening yeah. or whatever. But 
The Mule, Fifteen Seventeen to Paris, Richard Jewell. These we films. watched The Mule quite recently. Actually, it was really good. Yeah. Need to watch Richard Jewell. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not too bothered about Fifteen Seventeen, but if you pick it for film club, I won't have a choice. That, that is the cycle. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of our view programming review sponsored by tango ice blast and there's plenty more classics you can go see at views you can go see a nightmare on elm street or when harry met sally i'm gonna see the exorcist next week hopefully yeah i I was looking on the weekend and there were literally like 10 films throughout the day from like the category that we're talking about like evil dead one and two no army of darkness yeah that's a bit that's a bit mad isn't it the most official version (laughs) i might go see those again though i used to love that yeah it'd probably be really fun in the cinema maybe we'll do a sam raimi episode yeah i think that would be great um (laughs) crime wave crazy movie i guess the sad sort of subtext to this is we are facing the death of like the cinema industry in the uk so we're just sort of like celebrating the last few moments of it perhaps for sure i'd say i mean i have no like local community cinema that i could turn to i sometimes fantasize about trying to start one but you know you'd need to go into town for an alternative but you've got so much choice man you've got a odeon in uxbridge you've got a cine well you don't have a cine world anymore and you got a view in Harrow, so you got you can run the whole gamut. You don't need independent <laughs> cinemas. Yeah, Cineworld are now closed, but as we explored, they're more expensive anyway. Um, the nation is littered with every man's, every men, which you can patronise for a cool £16 for a single seat. It's fucking long. I really want to go see this new Roy Anderson film, but I will have no choice but to return to the place where I saw the souvenir and haven't been since <laughs> but it's gonna happen roy anderson episode coming soon i hope you keep this up that that would be cool for sure especially as we wait out the months for no time to die to come back and save <laughs> save the cinema industry like its cousin tenet did a couple of months ago <laughs> yeah i don't know i guess the prognosis feels pretty bleak doesn't it and it does feel pretty dirty to have been like talking up view the whole episode but got to work with what you're giving we were looking at the bfi slate which looks cool for it's the marlene dietrich season yeah in december can't wait i think we'll try and catch some of that <sighs> yeah but it's hard to pry me away from the view you know but <laughs> we've got other home watching phenomena going on as well they're not the only programmers in town i don't actually have the name of the view programmer but i'll get it <laughs> yeah i think it's been a few months now since we did a roundup of films we watch our, our online film club. Can you believe it's still going strong? If anything, it's getting more and more tasteful, more and more interesting <laughs> as, the, as the membership swells. And you too, dear listener, can join our Discord. You can even play Among Us with us if you fancy. But yeah, so many good picks, honestly. I love to, to turn down shit in the name of joining the film club on Wednesday night. For sure. I mean, it's an important part of the calendar, for sure. And lots of bangers. Not many clangers, really, at all. Although one one real clanger um, among this list that I'm looking at here. Can you guess what it is? Oh, it's not the Don Hertzfeld, is it? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, the Postman Always Rings Twice, the 80s oh, yeah, that remake. Was, um, that was pretty which peak. Was, 
or a dirge. Um, but otherwise, I feel like we've just watched so many good films. Everyone always brings an interesting selection. I'd never heard of Secret Honor before, despite being a massive Altman fan. But this I would super recommend, especially for lockdown. It's just like one person in a room. And it's also, you know, conspiracy theory central. It's got um, Philip Baker Hall, great stage actor. And you may know him from uh, Magnolia and Hard Eight. Playing Richard Nixon, having a sort of long dark night of the soul where he's trying to deliver his memoirs slash sort of confessional into a dictaphone as he's just getting progressively more drunk and irate and confused. Great time. Great movie. Yeah, it's an astonishing performance. And it's all about performance, I guess, because it's not like virtuosic filmmaking. I guess it's a period where Altman was doing more of like stage adaptations and stuff like that. You can really feel its um, origins on the stage, I guess, because it is like a one-man monologue. Mm, but he shot that room from every conceivable <laughs> angle, you know. I just, For sure. I just love to imagine Altman behind the camera as it's like swiveling around smoking massive joints watching Philip Baker Hall do his uh, drunken Nixon impression revealing all the seats. It's like a leftist podcast, you know, like the, yeah, the Gapes sure. cast it's, or something. Yeah, it's like scattered and like, <laughs> yeah, much like this, I suppose. The chat after that one was especially informed, you know. For sure. That kind of concluded the black pill season. I'm not sure it really did. No. Soon thereafter was Fires on the Plane, Konichikawa's 1959, same year as The Human Condition, another amazing Japanese anti-war film. But this was just, I don't know, I need to stop using the word astonishing, but I'm clearly just always astonished by films that I like. Aesthetically, it was insane. Yeah, every single shot was a masterpiece. It was, you know, that shit I like, that widescreen late 50s black and white film stock. Used to incredible effect, much like Women of the Dunes, one of the early picks we had. But this, best war film I've ever seen. Decidedly an anti-war film. I guess it's about that sort of, you know, trope of like, there's still Japanese soldiers on the island who don't know that World War II is over yet. Yeah, for sure. It definitely yeah. plays off that myth. Time completely disappears. Yeah, for sure. Oh. And yeah, it just interrogates um, the imperialism of the period in a really interesting way. And I guess it's very like moral investigation sort of film. Very bleak and visually striking. Crazy use of light. And the film stock, as you said, is just like... I guess for showing those landscapes and showing like the alienation of the characters or like their journey, it's just perfect. There was another perfect 50s Japanese film that's on YouTube, which couldn't be more different really, although equally as harrowing. This was uh, Kinuyo Tanaka's The Eternal Breasts. Oh, you missed this one, Infinite didn't you? Infinite Chest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I loved this. It was a very yeah. hard sad watch it was about a poet who died the year before and it's kind of her developing her poetry as she's dying of breast cancer proper weepy but beautifully shot made by one of the only female directors from japan from this period and she had a very hard time making it even though she'd worked with like ozu and mitsuguchi none of them really supported her move to directing films but this was a really unique and deeply felt piece of Japanese cinema. Looked a lot like films by those aforementioned auteurs, but had a decidedly different angle and absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, I was really gutted to miss that one. I only miss them if I'm out of town though. <laughs> That's always my excuse, but you've really sold it to me. It sounds dread. 
those two were selected by um, Brandon and Cam, two good friends of the show. So shout out those guys. And we got Brandon's next pick tonight, which is Blue Collar by Paul Schrader. Incredible film. More Japanese cinema to cover from oh, the film true. club. This one might need its own episode, to be honest. <laughs> um, we watched Wild Zero, um, a film featuring the Japanese band Guitar Wolf, who I weren't, wasn't familiar with before. But yeah, picked by Patrick. I wasn't familiar with Guitar Wolf either, but I haven't stopped listening to them in the last <laughs> six weeks. It's just so my shit, you know. Every song has a one, two, three, four, you know. <laughs> All the songs are about rock and roll and, you know, having a wallet in your ass with a rock and roll license. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. It was so, I mean, it's a quintessential B-movie, I guess, in every aspect, really. Uh, from, you know, there are zombies, there are aliens... There's rock and roll. It's really got it all. We've got to make the Phil Graves rock and roll film one day, Sam. Coming soon. Um, Battles Without Honour and Humanity. Oof. A gangster film. I guess it was part of a really long series. It's one of those ones that was like in my Amazon watch list when it was like on a random, on like Shudder or something like that um, <laughs> for ages. Um, so that was really good to watch. Crazy um photographic style very dynamic and super entertaining pick loved it i said i was going to watch the other six like straight after but i haven't actually got around to it yet but yeah i've never really seen any yakuza films before i guess but this did just have incredible framing and great storytelling reminded me a lot of peter greenaway wow whose film <laughs> whose film i missed sadly even though it was my dear girlfriend's pick <laughs> Um, yeah, Drowning by Numbers was, uh, I don't know, I, I suppose Peter Greenaway's films are always described as like very painterly and informed by his um, affinity with Renaissance painting. I feel like that's extremely manifest in this film. Like Robert Altman, he's very inspired by the Dutch masters, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, it was just like a, re- a true pleasure to watch, really. It's about... Uh, sort of matriarch of a family who drowns her husband and then all the other women in the family decide to drown their husbands you know an extremely farcical plot um the way each of these stories is handled is aesthetically really interesting the first one looks like a like a Jan Steen painting or something like that um with like you know, geese strung up and, like, apples, like, rolling across the floor and stuff. It's crazy. Um, And then as it goes on, just different styles. Um, Really a huge accomplishment. I love everything of his that I see. I guess this, like Secret Honor, was also a very conspiratorial film. Big focus on, like, numerology and um, the actual, like, coming together of, like, little, like, cabals and literal conspiracies in this um village oh it just sounds perfect perfect yeah, for the film a... club perfect for 2020 in every way green away yeah. <laughs> giving you the juice yeah it's really entertaining you so... got to watch the falls man that's on bfi mm. player right now you can watch it in little it's like a quibby film you know you can watch it in like little 10 minute, <laughs> 10 minute segments um, r.i.p um <laughs> we hardly knew you <laughs> Really, I love the ones that I've seen. Um, you actually introduced me to him a couple, 
a few years ago, you got me the Draftman's contract and the belly of an architect on DVD for my birthday, very kindly. And yeah, just changed the game, really. Such a meticulous filmmaker, I think maybe is the word. These Michael Nyman scores as well are just always fire. What else have we got? Uh, your pick, the other film on this list uh, that I missed because I was away. Mikey and Nikki, you tried to bring it in earlier in the episode when we were talking about Rocky and I cut you off. So yeah, tell me about it, man. Another fine film set in uh, Philadelphia in 1976. Uh, this was Elaine May's third feature, much like um, Kinuyo Tanaka. She had a pretty difficult time being a film director. And this film wasn't very successful, but it's had a huge resurgence recently on Twitter and Letterboxd and these kinds of things. But it is an absolute masterpiece. Probably the film that made me cry the most. I'd seen it before, but really hit deep. Cassavetes and Peter Falk, you know, two of the best actors of all time. It's also been a lot of <laughs> Columbo chat on the Discord. Um, it's just a beautiful friendship. Um, I won't give too many spoilers. It's a gangster film, you know, but um, just takes so many unexpected turns. And oh, it's so deep, actually, sort of welling up thinking about it again. Maybe it's just Philadelphia <laughs> oh, films, God. you know, it's like Rocky. Yeah, I didn't realise it was the same year. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, I guess it was contemporary to some of these Cassavetes films like Woman Under the Influence and Faces. But, you know, a lot of people these days talk. I, I love John Cassavetes, by the way. I think he's essential to the history of cinema and like one of the best filmmakers but there is a big question about misogyny in his films which people have a lot of different opinions on and elaine may's sort of skewering of the male friendship sort of paradigm that you find in something like husbands and really getting to the heart of the relationships is just sick yeah i've really got to get involved i feel ashamed not to have seen it based on the way you're talking about it what else have we had who framed roger rabbit did you miss that one? I did miss Watch it. That? I'm afraid I was doing a doing a radio show at the time. But I mean, you know, <laughs> I wanna... I've seen your Jessica Rabbit poster. <laughs> oh my, um... <laughs> my my big Bob Hoskins poster. <laughs> I love I love that man. Rest in peace. I need to watch that shit again, to be honest, just for you know extended universe shit. Don't you get Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse sharing the screen? Uh, yeah. There's a lot of um, you know. They had the lawyers like in overtime, I guess, for the the samples. In 2020, people would just eat that shit up. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess something like Ready Player One is a comparison, but uh, it was just such a technically accomplished film. Um, the animation was really beautiful, actually, and the way it's incorporated into the way they mix the live action stuff and the animation holds up so well. Everyone was sort of enthrall a bit i think it was fun the effects can't have been as good as wild zero though surely <laughs> no i mean it's a high bar rock and roll is the highest bar i'm not sure anything really tops it did ginger snaps top it i thought ginger snaps was terrifying to be honest <laughs> it's a fine fine pick from paul i really rated it i guess it was the only spooky season film we watched and i think it was actually in september Oh, God. Yeah, I guess it's a real cult classic. Wasn't actually familiar with it, but I know it has a sort of reputation, I guess. Real turn of the century, sort of bait horror, I guess. The blockbuster era. <laughs> yeah. When you get halfway through, I mean, less than halfway through, and you're like, oh, you know, the subtext is now fully the text, and, you know, the pleasure comes from just, like, stupid special effects or whatever at that point. I guess it was all right. I appreciated how they foregrounded the themes. Maybe I'm just terrified of women. I don't think so, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just so bait. Yeah, 
I thought it was great. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to watch Ginger Snaps back. Fair, fair enough. I mean, there are lots of sequels, aren't there? Not as many as Battles Without. <laughs> what else did we have? Oh, a few more bangers, actually. Oh, yeah. Corpus Christi, Shan picked a while back. Jan Kamasa's Priest film. My favourite film of last year, potentially. I think officially in film Grey's terms, but just a really good drama. If I could revise my list from last year, I'd definitely have that and transit up at the top because they were both. Oh, yeah, that was great, wasn't it? Corpus Christi was fucking awesome. I mean, it's a priest smoking weed or he's not even a priest. What more could you ask for? I loved it. It was very rich and interesting. I need to watch the other films by Jan Kamasa, like The Hater, the film about a troll, which is on Netflix right now. Yeah. An internet troll, not like a beastie. <laughs> great pick from Shan. I also loved True Stories, David Byrne's film from the 80s which i'd never never seen before and i never really appreciated the talking heads album it's their second last one that much either kind of prefer naked but beautiful time so weird such like a precursor to like twin peaks or whatever also reminded me a lot of human highway by neil young (laughs) just (laughs) is that the one you talk down quite often i think i talk down pretty much all of them man (laughs) um human highway song with devo in it yeah true stories beautiful look at Life in America, in like a weird Texan town. For sure. Very right. The Lynch comparison is definitely um, appropriate. Yeah, he's a very charismatic presence in it. I think he sort of wrote it as well. He's not credited as the main screenwriter, but it's clearly like a cool passion project, an extension of like the Talking Heads universe. Really cool. Great John Goodman performance also. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't really think of many films like that, really. No. Um, it's easy to call it lynching, but it was so pleasant, you know. It wasn't that, like, bad vibes. Even though it had political subject matter and raised interesting questions, but it's probably the nicest film we watched. I don't know, Kind Hearts and Coronets is pretty nice as well, you know. I mean, that's literally all about murder and larceny and scamming. <laughs> Presented with such levity, though, that it's... Uh... I guess it's a real charity shop, like Ealing Comedies classic. I saw it for the first time a couple of years ago, actually. I don't know, like 70 years after it came out. <laughs> Very entertaining. Alec Guinness performances. Definitely. All nine of them. We watched uh, Don Hertzfeld's It's Such a Beautiful Day last week, selected by Jared, friend of the show. Yeah, that's right. And Don Hertzfeld was tweeting in response to Jared uh, about the cameras he used to shoot it as we started watching it, which was interesting. I guess it is technically a really impressive film, um, a sort of mixed media experimental film. Yeah, it bridges the gap between um, Stan Brackage and XKCD. Well. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit too twee for my taste, but an interesting artifact of uh, 2010s America, you know, the emo moment or whatever. Well, I mean, I found it pretty real, pretty deeply affecting. Yeah, look, it is an interesting representation of mental health, but... Some cool Wagner tunes on the soundtrack as well. Yeah, I think it was more like um, Soft Boy than Aardman, though. Sure, I'd really recommend it folks it's a punishing hour but yeah i can't believe it's only an hour loved it honestly <laughs> i've loved them all yeah we've watched some great films let's conclude the roundup with your uh, your most recent pick the roundup by <laughs> miklos yoncho yeah it's in bellatar's bfi top 10 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this was the first Yoncho film that I'd seen when I was trying to pick. There are a few, I guess, like Red Psalm he made a few years later. These deal with quite similar themes of like Hungarian history and uh, sort of resistance and hegemony in the region. It was a really mad film uh, about, as the name suggests, the roundup of suspected uh, sort of resistance fighters in the wake of like the uh, national uprising in the mid 19th century. Really punishing film. I thought it was astonishing. I loved the, uh, I guess I guess you'd call it choreography. I mean, there's not that much dancing in this film. It was kind of like Fort Apache or one of these John Ford films to me, but you know, told from the other side, a real like de-glorification to quote um, Caroline Nemesh in his book films of commitment which is a really interesting survey of eastern european cinema in the sort of soviet era and yeah the roundup i just thought the settings were mad yeah it's set as you implied in a remote outpost very like fordian settings in this like extremely flat landscape with like the wind whistling through it very atmospheric when the sort of cavalry music starts playing at the end it's just the most horrifying thing you've ever heard like any of these films i feel like there's one way to interpret it you know but i'd really recommend it to anyone and thanks for picking it sam oh mike thanks for watching it no one watch edward monk i've learned my lesson and i'm not going to pick films over three hours anymore please join the film club every wednesday 8 30 p.m uk time and you join and then you can state your claim to programming and get us to watch something whatever it is even if it's heat by michael mann <laughs> the heat lobby is growing ever stronger isn't it i feel like every week i have to say no it's someone's turn we can't just watch heat <laughs> we have a clocked out cops and criminals they're like two sides of the same uh, the same coin i've never seen heat you seen la takedown obviously not sorry it's no. <laughs> stupid, stupid annoying question that's a cool film michael mann's a great filmmaker and yeah i'm looking forward to giving heat another watch but before then i'm gonna make y'all watch like an anthony mann film or something like that so you know we get the true the true picture of hollywood yeah we only watch films um done by mans don't forget to subscribe to our um rss feed and rate us five stars and uh send us an email send sam a happy birthday message for next month <laughs> thanks for listening to film grays yeah cheers guys we'll be back soon I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Lots of love.